I always have guilt, even though I don't advertise this show and it might have, I mean, there might be 0.5 listeners. I might have half a listener at this point. I have no idea. I have no idea if the plays are bots. As far as I know, I'm just talking to bots. Just talking to bots. You talking to bots? But I always feel guilt when I talk about somebody, even if they're from my distant past and I don't name them, I always feel guilty talking about them. But it is an interesting case study, like the guy I was talking about last night. I see that as a case study, not an indictment of him as a human soul. Just this is a person I knew, and it's interesting to see the way the world has shaped that person, at least as I see them from a distance. I always have a sense of guilt, though. And I feel like I should be guilty. I should feel guilty for talking about people. But anyway, uh, one thing I mentioned last night was studies showing the decline in friendship. I mentioned it in context with the decline in sexual activity. And I was able to find a, a more recent study. I think this is more recent than the one I was referring to about the decline in friendship. And it's percentage who report having the following number of close friends, not counting their relatives. And as of 2021, this is just a study, but, you know, it is indicative of larger patterns that are playing out. And as of 2021, 15% of people polled said they had zero close friends. 15% zero close friends. 6% said they had one friend. 12% said they had two friends. And this is men. It's separated between men and women, which I think is important. So this is men. I'll start over. Among men, 15% said they had zero close friends. 6% said they have one close friend. 12% two friends. 16% three friends. 9% four friends. 14% five friends. 12% six to nine friends and 15% 10-plus friends. So 15% of men said they have zero close friends. 15% said they have more than 10. That's a lot of close friends. You know, and, and how do you define close friend? I don't know. I, it, like I was talking about last night, they tend to be people where you don't even have to think about contacting them. And something I didn't say last night, too, is there's a certain level of trust. Like, for example, a, a new friend of mine said to me recently, said to me uh, this week, I talked to him this week, and he, he said, uh, he was like, yeah, he's like, you know, he's like, I, I, I didn't like Trump. I didn't like Trumpsfeld. I think he's a hustler. I think he's a bad guy. And then he said, but he was so fucking funny. This is what I, I've been saying all along. You know, it doesn't matter if you like or hate Trumpsfeld. You know, I think being able to recognize the humor, like my mom hated Trumpsfeld, but she used to double over in laughter at, at what he would say. She thought it was genuinely funny. You could have a fun conversation about Trumpsfeld with her, even though she didn't hide the fact that she absolutely hated him. Didn't want him to be president. Same thing my friend the other day. You know, He just 
kind of out of nowhere. We were talking about something unrelated, and he was like, yeah, I think you know Trump's a hustler, this and that. I don't, I don't like him. But he's like, he was so funny. And we got into that conversation about you know, how sometimes it's, it's almost more comforting when you know somebody's a hustler. When you know the used car salesman is a swindler, it's almost more comforting in a strange way than when the used car salesman is ultra slick and convinces you he has your best interest in mind and he's your friend. But I didn't even think about it at the time. And I was like, in our current climate, that communicates a level of trust with somebody. When you make friends with somebody and in our current climate, they're willing to say to you, hey, you know, I didn't like Trump's felt, but man, he was funny. And he doesn't bother me as much as some other people. You know, I don't know. That just, I think it takes a level of trust to say that. But trust is a big part of it. I would say, you know, I don't, I don't sit, sit around thinking like, who's my close friend? Who's, who, what qualities does a close, I never think about it. And that's the whole point of a friend is it's not somebody you think about when you hear from them. You, it's not strategic. Like if I'm comfortable with somebody, they can send me 10 messages in a row that go unanswered or vice versa. I can send them 10 messages in a row just if I'm, if I'm feeling manic. It doesn't change the friendship. It's not weird. You either get back to it or you don't, but it's not weird. You don't think about it. You don't think, oh, this person's giving me a phone call. What the? This person I just met is giving me a phone call. What the fuck is he doing, dude? What the fuck are you doing? Dude? You, know, you don't think about that. It's not strange to get a phone call from somebody if they're your friend. So I think friendship is more about not having to think about all those things. Friends judge each other. That's what the beauty of friendship is that friends judge each other. It's not, people say that, oh, a friend would never judge you. A friend would never be mean to you. Some of the best friends I've ever had have been the meanest to me. And what makes it a good friendship, though, is that that doesn't stick with you. You don't hold a grudge. You, you can do the same to them. You shouldn't be mean to each other all the time. But, you know, that, that's, that to me is a truer sign of friendship. You can get past disagreement. You can get past moments of animosity or frustration. And more importantly, your communication, there's no strategy. There's no politics. And by that, I mean social politics. Like, you don't have to think about what you're saying to them or how it will be perceived in most cases. So I don't know how, how this study framed close friendships, but it's not something you can even define. You just sort of know. And uh, the study saying, you know, 15% of men have zero close friends. It's just tragic. It's horrible. And I mean, we're looking at, you know, one friend, 6% say they have one friend, 12% say they have two. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people who don't have people in their lives. But I want to get into women here. And 10% of women say they have zero close friends. 8% say they have one. 14% say they have two. 17% say they have three. 12% say they have four. 13% say they have five. 13% say they have six to nine. And 11% say they have 10 plus. So interestingly, a higher percentage of men have 10 plus friends. 
but fewer women have zero friends. Women tend to rest in the mid-range a little more. Yeah, I don't know what it's like to be a woman socially. One thing I do know about female friends I've had is they have a lot of difficulty maintaining friendships with other women. They don't have trouble forming them. But a lot of them don't have long-term close friendships in the same way that men do, That I, from what I've noticed. It's not uncommon for them to have a best friend for a month. They take photos together. They do everything together. They, they, they're in each other's lives. You would think they were sisters. If you met them right then, you'd just be like, oh, they're, they're like sisters. And then you'd ask them, you're like, oh, are you hanging out with Jenny? Oh, how's Jenny doing? She'd be like, Jenny? Oh, I haven't talked to her in a while. Everybody does that a little bit. Everybody will, you know, be friendly with somebody and then just you go your own separate ways, even without animosity. But I have noticed with close women friends that I've had, they'll have this very close friend. They're like sisters. They're inseparable. They talk about each other. They're in each other's business all the time. And it, But it's very short term. And then all of a sudden... They're not hanging out anymore. They're not even talking. And sometimes they hate each other. <laughs> I don't know what's up with that. You know, I, I have friends that it's hot and cold. Like I have a childhood friend where things are just fucking weird with him, you know? Again, I'm going to get into that territory where I feel guilty talking about it, but... This friend, in uh, 2017, I visited this friend, and I just quit drinking, and so we hung out, and for the first time in a long time, we hadn't, we didn't drink together. We just hung out, had a good time, and then uh, the next night, he, or maybe that same night when I got home, he was visiting from out of town, and he messaged me, and he, and he was obviously drunk. You know, I can tell if someone's drunk from the first text message. If I know somebody very well, I can tell they're drunk right away. And he accused me of stealing magic mushrooms from him, which was insane. Who steals mushrooms? One. But he sent me a message and said, you know, I had mushrooms on my dresser and they're gone. And I could tell right away he was accusing me. There was no, I, there's no history of me stealing let alone from him. But he was belligerent. And he, he kept sending me messages insinuating. He's like, well, they went somewhere. And it turned out, and he's like, the only people who have been in my room were you and my brother. Well, I'm not going to send him a message saying, maybe your brother stole him. I know his brother likes to get high. And what's funny is I didn't even see the mushrooms. And that's something I couldn't even imagine stealing. Like, imagine tripping on stolen mushrooms. I've done mushrooms a, a number of times in my life, but I'm not a big psychedelics guy. I'm not one of these guys who's like, you gotta, you gotta take psychedelics, you can have a whole new experience. Yeah, people can have, a, have profound experiences on drugs, on, on mushrooms. I've had them. My spiritual, my spiritual relationship hasn't come through psychedelics. I can see why... Someone would 
experience the world through a spiritual lens while they're on them. But personally, that really didn't play any role in my own quote-unquote spiritual development. But I know that if you were to steal mushrooms from somebody and eat them, that seems like a guaranteed bad trip. I can't imagine stealing mushrooms. Like, when I was a teenager, I remember one time taking an, an extra bowl of weed. Like, I had picked up weed for a friend. And just as sort of a tax or something, I took a, just a little nug. I hate that I did that. I hate that I did that. What a greedy, nasty thing to do. I took a nug. I can't justify that. It was, it was a long, it was like half my life ago. I, I treated it like a little tax or something, which was a shitty thing to do. But I don't steal drugs from people. Especially in my 30s, you know, I'm not, I don't see a bag of mushrooms on my friend's dresser and swipe it. But he was sending me all these messages, very accusatory, when there was no history. I'd known this guy my entire life, and there was no history of that. No history of me stealing anything from him. But I was like, he's drunk. Who knows what's going on in his mind? Maybe he fucking took them. I've been completely drunk before. And woken up and I've been like, where's that thing? Where's that food I was going to eat? Oh, I ate it when I was drunk. You know, the, you, you do that sometimes. You forget what you just did. Or maybe his brother took it. Or maybe he, he misplaced it. Who knows? If anybody should have been mad in that situation, it should have been me. I should have been mad at this guy for accusing me of stealing drugs from him. Stealing mushrooms from him. And I let a couple days pass, and I sent him a message about just something funny I had seen, and he, he never responded. And then I, I never followed up. I never tried to reach out again. We didn't talk for two years until my mom died. And we reconnected, and it was great. I've seen him. We've talked. Talked often. But then last May, he was coming to town. Not my town, but, you know, an hour and a half away. I was like, oh, it'd be great to see you. You know, I'm going through all these relationship problems. And we'd already talked through his relationship shit. And to me, it was just kind of, it was a bunch of nonsense, to be honest. You know, I know that stuff seemed important when you're going through it. And I'm not going to go into his whole life here. But it, it did kind of feel like a bunch of nonsense he had gotten himself into. And at that time, I was going through a bunch of shit myself. And I, I couldn't go. I had other obligations. So I couldn't go visit him. This is a guy who, you know, maybe I'm talking shit here, but I've known him his entire life. And he's overall a very good man, but he expects other people to cater to him in many ways. Socially in particular. He always had people catering to him socially. They would do what he wanted to do. And he doesn't demand much of people... But when people don't do what he wants, he holds a grudge. And so I just told him, like, I'm, you know, I have a lot going on. I'll have to get back to you. And then I never got back to him. That's on me. I never, I never got back to him. But you know what? People have done that to me a thousand times. And I don't hold a grudge about it. And we haven't spoken since then. 
And I don't feel like that's on me because there's this history of this guy doing this, this history of holding grudges. I'm just like, I don't even want to deal with this. I've been through this pattern with this person over and over again for the better part of 30 years. I've known him that long. If we're going to regroup, if we're going to, you know, be friendly again, it'll happen like it did a couple when my mom died. But there's just a tendency for this guy to do this. Like, I'm not always the best friend. I'm not always the best friend at all. But, you know, I, I don't hold grudges against my friends when they don't do what I want. I certainly don't accuse them of things that they didn't do. But anyway, getting away from you know personal anecdotes here, I'd still consider the guy a close friend. You know, if something earth-shattering happens in his life, I would hope he feels comfortable contacting me. But there's kind of politics to it. You know, not politic politics. But there always ends up being these politics to things with him. And uh, that makes that makes being a friend difficult because that, that shouldn't really be a part of it. You should give people the benefit of the doubt if you're friends with them. But anyway, um, I don't even know why I went into that. I guess I was talking about women that I've known have a tendency to have a best friend for a month. These two girls just met each other. They're going shopping together. They're texting all day. They're taking selfies together. Taking selfies together. And then you talk to them a month later and they're like, who's Jenny? Oh, Jenny, I don't, I don't like her. I've seen that pattern play out many, many times with women. I've never been through that myself. I've never had a friendship with a dude where we're best friends with a month for a month and then just it's just over. Like if there is kind of a hot and cold thing, it's somebody where we've been friends for decades or a very long time. The timeline is much longer. It's not just like this is a new person in my life. I love them. Oh, who? I don't like them. I just don't think that way. I don't, I don't, I've never had that experience with anybody else either. I've never had an, another dude be that way either. But looking at these statistics, you know, 15% of men say they have zero close friends. 10% of women say they have zero. 21% of men either have zero or one friend. 18% of women have zero or one friend. That's brutal. And like I was saying last night, this isn't all personal failure. Because the graph compares a similar survey from 1990 to the 2021 results. And it's much different. In 1990, 40% of men said they have they had 10 or more friends and that's dropped to 15 in the last 30 years in 1990 28% of women said they had they had 10 or more friends and that's dropped to 11 so with men it's it's been a far more drastic drop that makes sense to me men are so alienated Men used to get together. Men used to have their own 
separate spaces. And this is something I experienced in the 2010s as an adult. So many guys I knew couldn't even socialize without their girlfriend being there. And if they did manage to get out of the house and go to the bar for a drink with you, they were constantly having to report what they were doing to their girlfriend. She was texting them the entire time. And they'd apologize and be like, oh, I'm sorry. She, you know, we just have this relationship where we like let each other know what's going on. And I don't think it was a matter of trust. I don't think it was like, oh, if he goes out with the boys, he's, he's going to cheat on me. I think it was about control. And we can see that men don't join clubs anymore with each other. There are very few men-only environments. You know, and even interests that used to be the domain of men have a lot more women involved. And that brings with it all of these social politics. It, it's, it really infects everything. So I'm not surprised that the, the percentage of men who say they had 40% or... or 40% of men in 1990 said they had 10 or more friends, and now it's dropped to 15. I'm not surprised that it's been that drastic. With women, it's been pretty a pretty sharp drop, too. 28 to uh, 11, but not as sharp. But that also correlates with the, the drop in sexual activity. So we're seeing this drop in, se in sexual activity among men and women. And, and interestingly, it's the drop-off isn't exactly the same, but we've seen where there's a higher percentage of men who are having no sex than there are women. Women are having less sex than before, but a lower number than men. And men have also seen a sharper decline in friendship. So what's going on? I mean, you could say technology. I mean, we, could, we go down an entire laundry list of why this may have happened, but I'm just looking at this as it is. And uh, I don't know. In our current environment, I think part of it is trust. I, speaking for myself, I'm reluctant to hang out with people where I live because I'm just like, there are so many little things that come up. I was hanging out a few weeks ago, I was hanging out with my friend's brother. My friend moved, left town. So I was hanging out with my friend's brother. He's a good guy. You know, he, he's very isolated, introverted. I like him. I get along with him. But we were talking about Asia. And I was telling him about going to Korea. And I was like, yeah, it was interesting, you know, because I went to a bar and they the owner, this old Korean guy, came to the door and he was like, no American, no American. He was doing this like cross motion with his arms. And he said, we couldn't come into the bar because we were American. And the people I was with were really upset. They were like, oh my God, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And I just kind of laughed. I was like, that's amazing. I've never gone to an establishment and been told that I can't enter because of my nationality. I wouldn't want to live in a world where that's constant, but I kind of enjoyed the novelty of it. I wasn't mad. And you know what? Why would I want to be in a bar where I'm not welcome anyway? Even if they let us in, but they hated us. Why would I want to hang out there? I don't want to be in a place where that's my experience all the time.
But you know what? If they don't want Americans, and you know, there was a military base there. And I have to figure one of the reasons why they banned Americans from this bar in Korea was probably because the soldiers get drunk and cause trouble. I don't think they just hated Americans. I imagine they had had some bad experiences probably with uh, soldiers getting drunk or something to that effect. But I, I was talking to my friend's brother about that, and I was like, yeah, you know, it was an interesting experience. And then you know, he was like, well, you can't get any more racist than America. Because we were kind of talking about some of those those biases, you know, places where people don't like certain groups of people or America. You know, it, it wasn't that uh, it wasn't that sensitive. It was just sort of like a, a fun general conversation, mainly focused on Asia. And he he just he said, you know, well, you know, the most racist country is America. I didn't say anything, but there are so many things like that. So many interactions are like that now, where someone says something very polarizing. It didn't bother me. It just made me realize there's, I, I can't trust this guy to have just a natural conversation. Like talking about my friend the other day, a couple days ago, who mentioned, he's like, oh yeah, I don't like Trump, but he was so funny. He's like, I miss him because he was so funny. You wouldn't be able to say that to anybody in this town. But there's a level of trust that he could say that. And that started to ramp up, you know. It, it was Those sorts of things would come up now and again. I mean, it's not like you could trust everybody with everything. And you don't need to trust everybody with everything. But that started to ramp up, you know. The early 2010s, I feel like you could still be comfortable with people. You didn't have to agree with them. You could sometimes disagree. But it wasn't like everything was... It wasn't like everything orbited those topics. And I'm as guilty for thinking about those things as anybody else. I bring them up on here all the time. It sucks. It's almost like having to go to the bathroom all the time. Like, I was on a Zoom meeting, and I had to go to the bathroom, like, four times during it. And I was like, fuck, I keep having to go to the bathroom. That's kind of how I feel when I bring these things up. But they're on my mind. They're on everybody's mind. We're infected. It's like, I have to keep, I have to keep going to the bathroom. I have to keep saying this shit. But it has made me very reluctant to reach out to people and to hang out with people. I mean, there's a girl that I really like who lives here. Kind of had a little romantic thing a few years ago, and she saw me out and about. She drove by me, and she messaged me. I think I, I think the world of her. She's amazing. But when I hadn't talked to her in a while, when she messaged me, you know, she she brought up the Nord Stream pipeline getting damaged, and that she was really upset about it. I don't even know what what to think about that. I know some people feel that America did it to sabotage Russia, Russia. I know that some people think Russia did it as an act of self-sabotage that they could blame on their enemies. Maybe she was just upset about the pollution and that that's going to really impact the European people's ability to heat their homes. It's going to drive prices up. You know, I didn't want to know. I didn't want to ask. 
because some years back when we were spending a lot of time together, you know, there were those sorts of differences in opinion. It was when those things were ramping up. She's a great person. I, I have, I, I think the world of her, but I just, I, I just, I felt that I was like, shit, like, I don't want to say anything about this. It's like when my friend's brother the other day, a couple of weeks ago, we were walking and he was just like, yeah, you know, America is the most racist country. I'm just like, what am I supposed to say about that? Because I'm not the kind of person who actually wants to launch into a discussion of what that means. I have my own take on that. But it, it, it's led to me isolating way more. Because the number of times that stuff comes up, and I would hate to know that I put somebody else in that position. I would hate to know that I said something that put somebody else in that position, and I probably do and have done that. But I try to avoid it. I'm conscious of it. Because you don't know. You don't know what their take is. And, and there's not a level of trust. People don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. And they're living in different realities, too. But uh, it, it's greatly Im impacted my interest in romance, especially in this area. You know, I, I've just been doing my own thing anyway for my own reasons. But still, it is something that I consider when it comes to women. I'm just like, you know, I, I just don't want to have to deal with that again. Because I was in a long-term relationship. Dear diary, dear diary, I was in a long-term relationship. I was in a long-term relationship uh, around the time Trumpsfeld got elected, when he got erected. And everything building up to that, the, year, the, couple, the two years leading up to that, especially 2015, before he was even in the picture, just the, the social climate leading up to that was becoming so putrid. And my girlfriend at the time and I had different views on many things, but we really liked each other and got along and had common interests. But those things started to force themselves in. I mean, I remember a specific, this, this wasn't even that big of a deal, but to me it was just a symptom of everything going on where it must have been 2016. There was a, a gay club downtown here. And there was one night where some gay people got physically attacked outside of the club and called faggots. That went, in this, in this area, that was like wildfire. Everybody I knew was like, oh, that, a hate crime. There was a hate crime. They almost seemed to be reveling in it. Our little lone local hate crime that we can talk about constantly. If you got on social media or at that time locally, people were just spreading, there was articles about it. They, 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 were, they were reveling in it. Well, about a week later, it came out that the perpetrators were black. A group of black people physically attacked some gay people outside of a, night, a gay nightclub and called them homophobic slurs. That thing got dropped. You know, that, that thing just got dropped. 
It was all everybody was talking about for a week. When it came out that the perpetrators were black, just got dropped. Totally memory hold, totally forgotten. And I remember I was at dinner with my girlfriend around that time. We were at a restaurant and uh, things weren't even weren't going well between us for very various reasons. But that came up somehow, like just that incident. Like we were, we were talking about just things going on. And I don't know who brought it up. She might have brought it up, but she hadn't heard the, the, the latest development. And she, she said something about it. And I was like, well, you know, who? I, said, I, I asked her, I said, who do you think did it? Who do you think attacked those gay people and uh, called them names? And she goes, oh, well, straight white males. And I said, well, it, it came out that they were black. And she goes, oh. And I wasn't trying to make some big point. I wasn't trying to... It, it was just a good example, though, where, like, everyone was so caught up in that incident because they had this phantom in their mind that, oh, these rednecks, these rednecks, these straight white men committed a hate crime. And she hadn't heard the latest development. And I just, since it came up, I just wanted to ask her, like, who do you think did this? And she had this phantom in her mind of who did it. And when I told her who did it, it wasn't like I was trying to say, see, black people are so homophobic. I, I wasn't even trying to make that point. I was just making the point that you, you made an assumption about that and are really upset about it. And like everybody else I know, you know, are you going to drop it because of that? If you care so much about it, are you going to drop it because you found out that the perpetrators are black? And sure enough, from her reaction, I could tell that's that was her take. But those things started to become bigger and bigger. You know, those things started to play a bigger and bigger role. It's not like everybody operates that way, but those things are almost unavoidable. And a large part of that is just how connected people are to information. At any given time, you or somebody you know is aware of something going on in the world that plays directly into your worldview. And if you don't have all the information about it, you will create a phantom that plays right into your narrative. I try not to do that myself. But if you're not on your phone reading the news or, or seeing it on social media or yourself, one of your friends is telling you about it. So this sort of stuff is on people's minds all the time. I'm not saying that social politics have... Uh, I'm not saying social politics are the sole reason why there's been a drop in friendship and romance and sexual activity, why all these people say they have zero friends. But I can tell you it's not helping. Like, I often don't feel like I deserve friends. I don't feel like I'm a great friend sometimes. But for whatever reason, I don't have, I've never really struggled to make friends. I don't necessarily like to spend that much time with people, but I, I've never really struggled to just make friends because you just have to treat people decently. You don't have to be interesting. You just have to get along with people. It's really, it's, it's truly as simple as that.
You just have to have a little bit going for you and just know how to get along with people. That said, I don't trust people. I don't feel comfortable around people in this environment. And I don't think I'm paranoid. It makes me want to disengage with people because there's always something. And while those things used to come up, they would just kind of come and go. You knew they weren't important. You know that you, you knew that your relationships weren't based on that. Like you knew that your relationship with your girlfriend was not based on who called gay people faggots last weekend. But those things started to come up more and more. And people started to, to react far more deeply to those things. And their reactions were coming from a deeply biased place on top of all that. Why would you want to deal with that? Why would you want to deal with that in your personal interactions with people? Like I said, I'm probably guilty of doing this myself. I'm guilty of bringing things up with people. I'm infected. I try to avoid doing it. But I'm guilty of it for sure. But I think this has created more distance between people. We go down an entire list of every new development, every, every modern development in the last 20, 30 years that has led to this great isolation and alienation. It's hard to say any one thing is the cause. Some people are like, oh, it's technology. People are spending all their time online. They're spending all their time checking their emails. They're spending all their time playing online video games. Here's something I will say, though. I don't think you necessarily have to be around the people you consider your close friends to maintain those friendships and, benef and mutually benefit from them. You know, some of my closest friends who used to live in this area moved away. We've maintained our friendship. Even if we don't talk every month. There's still a certain level of camaraderie that doesn't fade. Like, there's a strong enough foundation that it doesn't fade. I have a couple friends, a few friends, that I've never even met in person. And I consider them close friends. The friendship might be disembodied. It might be cerebral. But it's not based around going to the movies. You know, you can speak to people, you can communicate to people in so many different ways. And that can still be meaningful, that can still be strong. If you're invested in it, if it has meaning to you, then what else do you need? I mean, think about it this way. Let's say you're in prison. And... You're allowed one telephone call a week for 15 minutes. Imagine giving that person a cell phone with everybody they know's phone number in it. Their life would be infinitely better just based on that alone. If somebody in prison could be sitting in their cell at night and they could call anybody who they consider a friend or a family member, they don't need to see that person and they might prefer to see them in person. But that communication would take on a whole new level of depth and meaning 
And uh, I think you can apply that same mentality to yourself if you feel isolated. Even if people aren't around you physically, I think you can invest in it and take meaning from that communication just like a prisoner would. And the best part is you're not a prisoner. You got freedom and options. But these studies, you know, they're just, they're terrible. This drop in, in friendship, it's, it, it really, I, I, <laughs> I, I find it really deeply upsetting. And I think about what it must be like to be a young man today. Anybody, but a young man in particular. You know, because I remember when I went to college, I moved an hour away from where I was from. I would still visit my old friends in my hometown. But for the first couple months of college, you know, maybe the first month, I didn't have any friends. There was nobody, there were some people I would talk to in class. And then I started talking to people like there was a dude in my class who was into underground music, like not even stuff that I was that into. Like he was in a grindcore band. He was in a grindcore band. But there was common ground. Like we had, we were 18 years old and we had a class together. So we, we talked we talked about music. He understood, you know, at least some of that stuff. And we could talk about it, you know. So it's like I went to shows with him, hung out with his friends. Like his friends came to town. Like he was into smoking weed. So there we go. Some other guys in class, same thing. Like, oh, they smoke weed. So I was able to make some friends for a little while, you know, and it's like these didn't end up being permanent friendships, but it was like, I remember though, when I first moved to Olympia, it's like there was a solid month where I was like, shit, I'm living in a place with zero friends. And uh, I'm wondering how many people feel that way for more than a month. And who might not feel like they have friends in their hometown who they can contact. I mean, to be, to be very candid, I remember the, the first night I moved to Olympia, I remember actually weeping. Because I'd spent the entire summer before I moved down here just having the, the best summer of my life. We had just graduated high school my group of friends, we all had cars. We were just we were driving around our hometown, smoking a bunch of pot, going to the woods. That was a really great, fun summer. And then I moved down here and I was like, why did I leave my hometown? I could just stay with my friends up in, in uh, Kirkland and just do that forever. I mean, thank God I didn't. But I had almost this towny regret where I was like, I was like, do I really want to leave my hometown and, and not be a townie? Not be a townie? I'm really glad. I'm really fucking glad I left. And, and that feeling didn't follow me. Like after that first night, I, I felt okay. Aside from the fact that I realized, oh shit, I don't have any friends in this area. That first night was rough. I was just like, fuck. You know, that was the ideal teenage summer, and now I'm down here. What the fuck am I doing? But that wouldn't, you, that wouldn't have been sustainable either. Like, if I had stayed in my hometown and, and my high school friends and I just drove around smoking pot, 
doing nothing all the time. I mean, that that would lose the the appeal very quickly. But I think about, you know, these young people who it's like they've grown up purely in the digital age. At least I experienced the world before that. You know, video games were around when I was a little kid. My friends and I liked video games. But it was balanced. We spent more time outside. We spent more time playing guns, as we called it. We spent time drawing, playing with action figures. Video games and movies were just one part of that. That's what you did when you came inside for the night. So I don't know what it's like to be a kid who who grew up in a, a purely digital age. I experienced kind of the, you know, a, the, the, the border between both those worlds. And we know that stuff is, has alienated people from one another. So it's like there, there's people, though, where it's like they're coming from a, a background where they have few, if any, friends. And they're going to places where they certainly don't have any friends. They don't even know how to make them. You know, people are more socially awkward than ever. Like, I used to feel very socially awkward. You know, I've always been... Like, my mom used to say I was shy. But I was never shy. I I never felt nervous talking. I've always felt comfortable talking... But my mom used to tell people, my mom used to tell people I was shy because it was just like, oh, if Eric doesn't talk, he's shy. In reality, I just had nothing to say and I didn't want to talk to the certain people. My mom knew that. I think she was just kind of, <laughs> she was doing some damage control. Instead of being like, oh, Eric's an asshole sometimes who doesn't want to talk to you. It was just, oh, he's shy. But when I was younger, I remember feeling very nervous. Like talking to girls, I, I felt very nervous. Meeting new people, I was always very reserved, very self-conscious. I rarely feel that way anymore. I just don't give a fuck. A couple days ago, I recorded a podcast with uh, Michael DeLeonardo, the former mafia guy, for his show. He had our, He had the guys from my show on there. That should be coming out soon, a little self-promotion here. But after it was done recording, I was like, because I'd never actually talked to him over video before. I've talked to him on the phone. You know, he's a 70-year-old, well-known former mafioso who through just a weird twist of fate, I've gotten to know a little bit. He's not my best friend, but, uh, you know, I I respect the guy. And, and, you know, there's mutual respect. And I'm honored that, you know, that we're in contact. It's, It's amazing. But after we after we finished the video, I, I thought to myself, I was like, fuck. You know, I didn't feel like you'd think that that would feel like a job interview or something, but it just felt like talking to a person. Because that's kind of something you, you learn in life is you realize that like people, it turns out, are just people. You respect some people more than others. You like some people more than others. You can talk to some people easier than other people, but... Those sort of first date job interview nerves, you know, I think you can get over that. I think you can just, you realize that, oh, everybody's a person. Like, I haven't done a lot of public speaking to an audience or anything like that. 
But I think that's probably what people who are comfortable talking to a crowd feel. They're like, oh, these are just people. These are all just individual people. Why would I be terribly worried about them? Why would I be so worried about what they think? Even though they can be savages, why would I be worried about what they think? But I look back at how I felt when I was a teenager and even through much of my 20s. Like, you'd meet people and be like, what do they think about me? Especially girls. You'd be like, what does she think about me? Oh, my God. You'd overthink everything. You were so self-conscious. Not to say that doesn't happen. You know, I, I still get self-conscious. I still get nervous. But like, point being, why I'm talking about that is just because it's like, when you're that when you're younger, it's like there's this. So even if you're comfortable talking to people, you're socially awkward. And now we we live in a time where everybody's socially awkward. Most young people are socially awkward now. And part of that is because they just don't have the same experience. Like I think about growing up where we would talk on the phone. I, I wonder what the fuck we talked about. Like when I was like nine years old, your friend would call you. It's not like you would talk for two hours, but your friend would call you and you'd talk. It was the only way you could get a hold of somebody. And so you got comfortable talking on the phone. Your relatives would call you. You'd talk to them on the phone. There's a lot of young people who can't even talk on the phone. They say it gives them this rush of anxiety. I had a girlfriend like that. And just to show you what a bastard I am, I would sometimes call her for that reason. <laughs> I would call her and, and, and just, you know, it, it didn't bother her that she, she would be laughing. Like I would, I would be entertaining her. But I was, I was also kind of harassing her and, and, you know, cause she, she was really big on this whole, like, oh, I, I hate talking on the phone. It makes me feel so awkward. Part of it is cause she didn't have much experience with it. And I, I know I've heard that over and over again with the youth of today. And by youth, I mean, even people who are my age, even millennials, they feel weird talking on the phone. There's people who have anxiety attacks just calling to make an appointment. I used to feel a little bit more that way. There was actually a point in time where I started to get anxious about the phone. I think it was when I was in my 20s. I had grown up being comfortable with the phone, having an actual phone conversation. And then I started to notice in my 20s, I was getting more and more anxious about it. Like if I would have to call somebody, even for something totally mundane and practical, like making a dentist appointment... I would have to build up to making the phone call. I'd be like, shit. It was like a performance. It was like performance anxiety. And I would stutter my way through it. I was like, I got to get over that. Something's happening here I don't like. I'm starting to feel weird and anxious about just making a mundane phone call. And it was probably around the time that I just, I started to talk on the phone a lot. I would much rather talk on the phone than text. I don't understand long text chains. I have a friend who I talk to on the phone for hours sometimes. And we'll have long text conversations too, when it's not good to have a phone call. But there's a lot of phone calls too. And there's some people I know though will like, they'll send me paragraphs after paragraph. 
in succession, like within a half hour. And it's like, we could just have a phone call. We could just have a phone call. Because the amount of time this is taking requires you to be typing into your phone for a half hour straight. Why don't you just call me? I feel like I should teach phone classes. I want to teach people how to talk on the phone. I'm going to teach Zoomers how to talk on the phone. This is how you do it. I think about my mom. She would sit there and just talk to her friends for hours every night. How's Johnny? Oh, is she going to school now? Oh, is Gwendolyn going to school? Oh, how does she like it? It was just a totally normal part of life. People don't really have that experience as much anymore. They're doing this through text. It also cuts down on miscommunication. So much miscommunication happens through text, through typing, through texting, through sexting. We had a miscommunication about sexting. S-E-X-T-O-N. Sexton. But, uh... The problem is, though, is like people feel weird about you calling them. But you want to reach a point with your friends. Like, I don't think someone's your friend if, you, if you're not comfortable just calling them on a whim. And they're not comfortable calling you. It's like a party. It used to be the party line. When I was growing up, you'd watch late night TV and see infomercials, and they would advertise the party line. It was this 900 number you'd call. You'd have to pay money to do this. I never did it. But you'd see ads for it. They'd have like sexy models and people posing, pretending to talk on the phone. You'd have like a hot blonde chick on the commercial with her phone up to her ear, like smiling, and be like, call the party line. And what the party line was, was a bunch of adults just called this line it, it was a verbal chat room. It was a bunch of adults on the same line just talking. It was like, yeah, it was like a verbal chat room. I don't know who did that. I've never met a single person who would call that. But that's what people did. Like if you were if you were lonely, you'd, you'd pay money just to talk to five people at once who you didn't know. I want to do that. <laughs> I wish the party line, maybe the party line still exists and I don't know. I kind of want to do that. If it was free, I would do that. I mean, this is the party line. This show is, is my own party line. I'm the only one here, just me and my phantoms. But it'd probably be like this. In the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, you know, when I, when I couldn't do this, when I couldn't just talk into the void by myself here, I'd probably just be calling the party line. Be like, you ever think about this? Hey, you ever think about how this sounds like this? And, and this? I'd probably just be making all kinds of friends on the party line. Think about like CB radios. Hey, Batty, come on. Batty, come on. Good boy. But the party line was, uh, I mean, this is the party line. Enough about the party line, because this is the party line now. But what got me going on this is just the social awkwardness of young people. And they tell themselves over and over again. It's become kind of an identity. 
talked enough about identity last night, but identifying as socially awkward has kind of become an identity. It's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You can break the shackles. Maybe part of its age. Like I had a boss years back, Gary. Interesting guy. He was not a white man. I think he was Latino. I believe he was Latino. I think he was half, because his, his surname was a white man surname. But this man had very dark skin, and he was from San Diego. So he, he was Latino, and a very dark one, too. Speaking of trust, like, for whatever reason, he trusted me. I didn't know him. You know, he was, he was one of those kind of stoic bosses who uh, you never really knew what he thought about you. But he would come up to me, and... Uh, it was, he, he would just kind of make offhand comments to me, and I, I realized, oh, he trusts me. Because one time he came up to me, he's like, yeah, you know, on weekends, I, I teach kids how to hunt. He was really into hunting and fishing, and he's like, I teach kids how to hunt. And he's like, truth is, he's like, I just like to kill shit. He's like, everyone talks about the food and all that. He's like, yeah, sure, that's great. He's like, I just like to kill shit, which I don't love. <laughs> I'm, I, I love animals. He did eat. I mean, this, he was a, he was a very large man. This guy got his fill of food. I have no doubt that he ate the food that he killed. <laughs> you know, he he might have liked to kill shit, but this guy ate it too. But he just made that comment to me, and like, it, it was more of a joke than anything. But he's just like, I teach kids how to hunt on the weekends. I teach these classes. Truth is, he's like, I just like to kill shit. He's the same guy. I mentioned him on here before because. One time we were talking, again, like he made these comments to me specifically for some reason. And again, this guy was not a white man. But one time he was talking to me, he's like, he's like, yeah, you know, it's like you never know if you, if you end up on some FBI list. He's like, I found out I was on one. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, you know, back in the 70s, I bought, uh, he's like, I mail ordered a copy of, uh, what's it called? The Turner Diaries, which, if you don't know, is, is, you know, one of the classics of white supremacist literature. It's about a, you know, a, a post-apocalypse, it's a racial post-apocalypse where this white guy is just killing people. I've never read it. But this guy, this, this Mexican or Latino guy, he's just like Gary. His name's Gary. He definitely was a Gary. He's just like, yeah, he's like, I, I, I found out I was on an FBI list. And it turns out it's because I ordered a, a copy of the Turner Diaries through the mail from this, what, what was a, like a, a white supremacist distributor. And he's like, years later, he's like, 20 years later, I made a friend who was, worked for the FBI in some capacity. And I asked him, I was like, you should check and see if I'm on any lists. And his friend came back to him and was like, actually, yeah, we, we actually do have, there, your name was in some database. And it was because he had bought a copy of the Turner Diaries from this white supremacist distributor. This is my fucking boss. A Latino dude. That's been my experience with Latino dudes in general. <laughs> I haven't known a ton, but they're, they always... Uh, <laughs> they've always got something up their sleeve like that. It's always fun. 
But I mean, to imagine telling your uh, your employee that today. This was like a decade ago, more than a decade ago. But imagine telling your employee today, like, oh, you know, I, I like to, I teach kids how to hunt, but the truth is, I just like to kill shit. Oh, I, I found out I was on an FBI list because I ordered a copy of the Turner Diaries through the mail in the seventies. It's not stuff you could tell it, but this guy had a this guy kind of had a get out of jail free card because he wasn't white. I don't know why he saw me as a confidant, but that communicates trust. Like that's, he trusted me with that information and I didn't say shit back. You know, I didn't, I didn't tell my own dirty, I didn't air my own dirty laundry, but I was just like, oh wow, that guy trusts me. Like I didn't want to work there long-term. I was underpaid. There were long hours, but you know what? I respected that. I respected that he just didn't give a fuck. And that's actually what he said to me once. He was he was in his 50s and he's like, you know, it's like, he's like, when you turn 50, you just don't give a fuck. He actually said that. And it was very clear from the things he said. I found, I ran into an old coworker a couple of years later and I was like, is Gary still there? And he's like, oh, Gary moved back to San Diego. I think he belongs in San Diego. But, uh, you know, trust and respect, because that's, that's part of this whole thing, too, is respect. People don't, don't have a lot of respect for each other. There's a fundamental lack of respect between people where if you say the wrong thing, even if you disagree, or even if someone disagrees, you still respect that person's mind. Like, I have friends who say things I don't agree with. I respect their mind. I have a friend who we disagree about a lot of things, but I greatly respect his perspective and his mind, and it's reciprocal. You know that person is coming from the right place, even if you disagree. There's respect and there's trust. And this is water is wet, sky is blue shit. But somehow we've lost it, and I think all of this plays into the decline in friendship. Statistically, we know there's been a decline in friendship, and it plays into the decline in romance, the decline of sexual activity, because those should be based on trust and respect, too, but they're hard to come by. And respect could be, you know, intimidation or something as well. That same place, the same place I worked at where Gary was the boss. I know I've told this story before, but there was a guy named Bacardi who worked there. His name was actually Bacardi. He was probably 40 years old. I don't know what he was, but he he was another uh, Hispanic guy. And my understanding is Bacardi means bat. I know that alcohol Bacardi, the logo's a bat. My understanding is it means bat. So his name was Bat. And he was a recovering meth, meth addict. He was clean while he was working for us, but he, he acted like he had ADHD. He would go to the bathroom and just be in there for a, a significant chunk of his shift. And he would wear these boots every day, Bacardi boots. He would wear these big work boots. And one time I went into the bathroom after he'd been in there, and I saw that there were the footprints of his boots on the toilet lid. 
And I was like, is he going in the bathroom and just like standing on the toilet? Because it wasn't one of those things where he was in there going number two every time he went in there. He would go into the bathroom, I guess just because he didn't want to work. But I went in there after him and I saw like the outline of his work boots. He was the only one who wore boots like that. And I, it was like dirt from his boots that left a footprint on the on like the closed toilet lid. And I was like, was he like reaching up? Was he like trying to look in the panels? What, what was he doing? Why was he standing on the toilet? But he would go around the entire warehouse because we worked in a warehouse. And he would throw shit. He would throw products. Like he would be walking down an aisle of the warehouse because we sold books and school supplies. And so there, were, there was like a bin of rubber erasers in, on one of the shelves. And he would just reach in and grab a rubber eraser and just throw it over the aisle at whoever was on the other side, not knowing who was there. He would run up behind people and scare them. He was just always screwing with people. And there was a time where he... He had done something, and he never did it to me. He would walk by me and look at me and say something, but he would never do his normal, he would never prank me. He was always pranking everybody else, always always doing stuff to annoy other people, but he never did it to me, and I never really figured out why, because I was young. I was just some young dude working there. But one time he threw something at somebody, and this lady was like, Picardi, why'd you do that, Picardi? And he said, he's like, I just like messing with you. He's like, I just like messing with everybody. He goes, I mess with everybody. And then he turns and I'm over there and he looks at me and he goes, except Eric. Because he's got the face of a killer. And I was like, what the fuck? I mess with everybody. Except Eric. Because he's got the face of a killer. With this sort of like Latino accent on it that I can't do. Haven't perfected my Latino accent. And I didn't know what to say. On one hand, I was honored. Like, this sounds very self-congratulatory. I was both honored as well as sad. It was a sad form of honor for me. Because I was like, on one hand, I like that this recovering meth head named Bacardi, who does nothing but fuck with people and goes in the bathroom for a half hour and just stands on the toilet lid. On one hand, I'm glad that he sees me as somebody not to fuck with. But it made me kind of sad. I was like, I hope that people don't look at me and and feel intimidated. I hope that people don't look at me and think, like, that guy's got an evil face. And just that that came to him so readily. He said that so readily. He was like, Eric's got the face of a killer. I'm harmless. (laughs) What that reminds me of is in the book Donnie Brasco, you know, it's about an FBI agent who infiltrated a, a mafia family in New York and he was pretending to be a, a mafia associate and him and a real mafioso who he hung out with. And the guy that he was with, the guy who was the actual mafia member had killed a bunch of people. He was a very dangerous guy, but Donnie Brasco and that guy, they had a meeting with this drug dealer from South America to discuss some sort of drug arrangement. And all of a sudden the drug dealer said, no, He's like, I don't want to do the deal. It's over. I don't want to do it. And they left the meeting and they were like, what the fuck happened? And then they followed up with it on an, with another guy who knew that guy. 
And the other guy was like, oh, the, the guy canceled the deal because he looked in Donnie's eyes and he, and he saw a murder. The South American guy didn't want to do the drug deal because he looked at Donnie's face and he thought, if this deal goes wrong, Donnie's going to come and kill us all. Meanwhile, Donnie's the FBI agent. He's never committed a single murder in his life. That's how I felt, where it's like, I'm, I'm the most innocent dude here. But Bacardi, the meth head, I'm the only person he doesn't fuck with because I, I have an evil gaze or something. It's, it's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> maybe, that's why the, maybe that's why Gary, the boss, used to come up to me and say, like, I just like to kill shit. I order white supremacist literature in the mail and I'm on an FBI list. Maybe Gary was like, oh, yeah, Eric looks, he's got the face of a killer. I can tell him anything. I can tell him about all my depravity. I don't know, man. I just want to be on the party line. I just want to call the party line, man. The reason I want to call the party line is because nobody can see my evil gaze. They don't, they're not going to judge me. Trust and respect, though. You know, we're living in low trust times, you know. Like, you know, people can't leave their bikes, you know, unlocked in their backyard or someone will steal it. People don't trust each other on that level, but they don't trust each other socially. They don't respect each other socially. There's a lack of trust and respect, and that plays into this decline. Because it's a social decline. If you want to wrap it all up into a, a single ball, the decline of friendship, the decline of sex, the decline of romance, it's all wrapped into one ball. It's a social decline. What the fuck is going on? We have to deliberately reroute this shit. But how do you do that? Especially when you see all the examples in front of us. People trying to destroy each other's reputations. Someone misspeaks. They say the wrong thing. And we hold it against them and tell other people about it. That's public discourse. Public discourse today is nonstop slander and reputation destruction. There's always going to be some of that. Politics are always going to be that way, to some extent. It has escalated so rapidly. In a time where we have so much luxury, and that probably doesn't help things. That even someone in poverty has certain luxuries that other people wouldn't have. They have devices. They have entertainment. They have things they can do apart from other people. I mean, there are young people today who don't know what it's like to just meet somebody. They don't know what it's like to just meet a girl. Their entire experience with that is, oh, you download Tinder, you download Bumble. You download Tinder, then you download Bumble. If you want to meet a girl, you download Tinder, then you download Bumble. That's all they know. I know young people still meet organically, but I think that's become more and more foreign. The idea of just talking to somebody, meeting them. And that shit's all very low stakes. 
I mean, I think back when I was young and how I would build that up in my head. I'm going to talk to her tomorrow. I'm going to talk to her tomorrow. But at least it was even an option in my head. You made a bigger deal about that stuff. Like rejection seemed like such a big deal. And it is in your own little world, but in reality, it's nothing. Being rejected is nothing. You're going to get past this crush in a week. It's better to know than not know. I never really did a lot of that. I never really approached girls that much. But you did meet them that way. I mean, I think every single girlfriend I've ever had, everybody who I've ever gone on more than one or two dates with, I met in person. In school, at work on one occasion, through friends. Maybe one of them I met through a, a dating app or something, but most of them, and it wasn't very many, you know, I haven't dated a lot of people, but still, most of them were met the old-fashioned way, just through living life. But I wonder how much of that's even going on. I mean, people aren't even getting the experience. People aren't even experiencing rejection. And experiencing rejection is very important. You need to do that. You need to do that to learn that it's not catastrophic. Because I think with people not even having any sex, people having no relationships up into their 30s, more and more people this is true of, they're not even experiencing rejection. And what's important about that too, it's not just losing your virginity and like learning what it is to have some kind of relationship with somebody. You also need to go through breakups. That's a very important part of your self-development is going through breakups. Like people frame it around the good stuff. Oh, this high percentage of young people today aren't having any sex. They're virgins until they're in their 30s. There's a lot of young men who've never had a girlfriend. He never had a girlfriend. They never had a breakup either, and that's important too. You need to go through that shit. That first breakup <laughs> where it's just, it's just an utter meltdown. The world is ending. The next breakup where it's like, oh, I, I, at least I know what it's like. Oh, my God, the world's ending again. But not as bad as the first time. You need to go through that process. And so people are missing out on that stuff. And that stuff is negative in the sense that it makes you feel bad and sad. But you need to go through it. So it's not just that people are missing out on the benefits of relationships. These milestones like losing your virginity going on dates, spending time with somebody, they're missing out on the important process of like when that doesn't work out and what you do with yourself, how you get past it, how you think about that, how you come to an understanding about what life is through that. That identity crisis that comes from a breakup. That helps make you what you are. That helps put life in perspective. So if you're not even getting that, what, what the fuck? Same thing with friendship. Like these people who are saying they have zero close friends. It's not just that you don't have people to hang out with and laugh with and enjoy life with. You also need to go through the ups and downs of friendships too. You need the negative stuff that goes along with friendship as well. You need to have disagreements. You need to get sick of each other. You need to have grudges. 
and get past them and figure those things out. So it's not just that you're not having the benefits of friendship, it's you're not having the downsides of it either. And you need to have those downsides in order to be a fully formed person. And so what we're dealing with is people who aren't even fully formed. We're dealing with partially formed people. And they are having a million identity crises. That episode I did last night was all about that. I'm a this, I'm a that. I don't do any of the things that make me that. But I'm a this and I'm a that. I've got to be something. I feel so empty. I've got to assign these identities to myself. Whew. Ooh. Ooh. Tom G. Warrior. Ooh. Anyway, we're at hour 16. I think that's enough here. I just I came across that more recent study that shows the decline in friendship. It's a downer, but it gets me thinking. It gets me thinking about like ways that I can be easier on people because people need people need they don't need life to be easier. They need their interactions with people to be easier. I'm opinionated. I can alienate people really easily. But I want to make my interactions with people a little bit easier. Because they're having a really fucking hard time with it. They're having a, a very difficult time with it. And they're missing so many foundations that make you what you are by the time you're an adult. It's getting delayed. It's getting stunted. And we're in a low trust, low respect period. Our trust and respect for each other is very low. And as much as I hate to say it, I struggle with that constantly. If I stare into the abyss and I see what's going on in public discourse, I just want to hurt people. I just want to hit them. Not maim them. Not kill them. I just want to hit them. Because we're past the point of conversation with so much of this stuff. I just want to slap them, break the spell. So I got to be careful and not look at that stuff too much because that's what's adding to all this. This lack of trust and respect comes from the fact that everybody has this animosity. Disagreement is magnified. Reality is fractured. I don't hate people who live in a different reality. I just wonder how I can connect with them. Where's the Venn diagram where our different realities meet in the middle? People have always lived in different realities, but we're having a harder and harder time finding that middle ground. And that's what friendship and romance and everything is, too. It, it, it's a Venn diagram between people. You're two different circles meeting in the middle. You're not the same person. You don't see the world the same way. You have different experiences. But there's a Venn diagram. And this is cliche bullshit. Oh, you just got to find common ground. You got to get along. But the things that we're teaching people don't seem to be working. The sort of instruction people are get doesn't seem to be working. I mean, you can only really... Uh, 
you only really get past this stuff from experience. And that's what people are lacking. The people I know who seem to do the best with other people. Like I think about my mom where she could find common ground with anybody. She was good natured. I think she was special in that regard. But I think what made her what she was is that she had so much life experience. Her background. Who she was before she married my dad and everything. It was like she had a lot of hands-on personal experience with volatile situations, different types of people. And I think that kind of, that gave her a strength as far as like where to, uh, that allowed her to blend in with people. It allowed her to harmonize with people. I'm not very good at that. But I do feel fortunate that I was born when I was born. Because it was a more experiential world. I do feel lucky that I had some of the experiences that made it possible to, to make friends, to meet people, to meet girls. And honestly, I don't know what the fuck this reality is that we're living in. I, I have no idea what it is. And I don't know what corrective measures we need to take except to call the party line. We need The problem is we no longer have the party line. We need to have a phone number that you can call, preferably free, but I understand if they want to charge you by the minute. Like the old party, like the party lines of old. I feel like if we just had that, just call, talk to people, see what they have to say. Social media is not working too well. Texting isn't working too well. Our interactions with the people we know aren't even working that well. We need to call total strangers on the party line and just blab. We just need to blab. Do a little blabbing on the party line. That's what I'm doing here. This is my own private party line. But it's still the party line. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free, so take